Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello. Uh, hi, is this uh, Nicholas uh, Sunziff? Yes, it is. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I tried to do uh, some research into something, and I was wondering if uh, you can help me with a quick question, and it only take like, a couple of minutes. Um, sure, no problem. Yes, sir. I was looking at uh, NASA's new photos of the Earth from space, yeah. and uh, so I, I got confirmation on the phone that, that that was the actual photos from space, like a direct photo of the Earth, like the entire globe of the Earth from space. And uh, so I took it, I, I was like, wow, that's uh, that's um, profoundly spherical, you know, and I took it into Photoshop and I drew a circle around it with a marquee tool and uh, with the constraints, and it was absolutely spot-on spherical, like a perfect spheroid. And uh, so I heard um, the other day, I was running across something where Neil deGrasse Tyson is talking about the Earth is pear-shaped. It's an oblate spheroid. It's not spherical. So I was like, what, what, what is the deal on that? Uh, I just wonder if I could get some information on what, what's happening there. Well, I can only... Um I don't have numbers in front of me, but I can tell you what I'm sure Neil was talking about. By the way, Neil did I? I was one of Neil's thesis advisors, so I know him very, very well. Oh, and I've always been I've been also impressed that basically everything he says is right. I've never had had never really disagreed with stuff he says. It's pretty amazing. I often disagree with some astronomers and stuff they say in the public, but Neil usually gets stuff spot on. What he's talking about is that there is a. Geophysicists describe the, the, the Earth in different ways. And one of the ways they describe the Earth is in terms of the geoid. And the geoid can have, is defined in, also in different ways. But one of the ways the geoid is, is defined is a symmetric um, spheroid that represents the average elevation of the Earth. And mm-hmm. so it, it's symmetric both, so the so the northern part looks just like the southern part. So just imagine a, a ball that's squished just very, very slightly. And so now what you do is if you take that, that uh, geoid from the geophysicist and you actually subtract off what the real surface of the Earth is mm-hmm. um, and, and however you define that. And what you left over is the tiny, tiny little residual. And what he's talking about is if you look very carefully at that tiny little residual, you'll see that in one part of the Earth it dips it's a little bit lower than it should be, and the other part of the Earth it's a little bit higher than it should be. But these are very, very small amounts. I don't know what uh, what they are. Actually, I have absolutely no idea of the scale. Um, they may be just miles or so. And so, when you're looking at the surface of the Earth, which is thousands of miles across, seeing these very tiny variations, mm. you're not going to be able to to see it at all doing doing what you're doing. Um, similarly, if you ever plot up the the orbit of Mars, which Kepler showed to be elliptical, uh, your eye does not detect this elliptical. It looks like a perfect circle. Mm-hmm. But only when you really carefully do the mathematics and subtract off the circle, you can notice the slight ellipticity to the orbit. But it's just a matter of degree. They, what he's saying is that there is this slight hair shape, but it is very, very small, and you're not going to be able to see it when you do... Uh, what you're doing in Photoshop. It's a good thing to do. I mean, that's exactly, that's a really good idea. But it's, uh, you have to have probably a much higher resolution image 
from him draw a perfect circle to be able to see uh, what's what he was talking about. So, um, uh, as far as uh, its actual ob- oblateness, I guess you would say, it is barely even perceptible from uh, just to the human eye, but it's something that's uh, it's it's measurable as far as it, if you do precise calculations. Is that is that how? It, but uh, yeah. uh, or otherwise, it's it's for all practical purposes, it's it's just about perfectly spherical, but not technically yeah. perfectly spherical. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. I see. Right. Yeah. Let me, let, me, let me give you another example. It has nothing to do with the Earth, but we're building a, a gigantic telescope called the Giant Magellan Telescope, and we have to make the mirrors to be very, very accurate so that the light gets focused just as crisply as possible. And so if you take one of the mirrors we have, which is about um, 25 feet across, and stretch it to be the size of the United States, the the errors in the mirror would only be about an inch high. So we can measure that level of error in, in a mirror that's, that's you know, 25 feet across, but you can't see it with your naked eye. The error is so, so small that it's just totally imperceptible. But these special techniques to be able to, to, to measure the error. So what you're seeing in the Earth is also a very, very small variation. It's interesting why the Earth would do that, and that's probably uh, something that geophysicists puzzle over, and I'm sure they have theories over it, but yeah. I'm not a geophysicist, but it's a very, very small effect. Yeah, that's because he, he mentioned something else. He said that NASA, something, and uh, maybe I'm misquoting him, but he said that NASA's misrepresenting the Earth and it's not correct. But then, you know, I, I, I'm i not sure exactly what he was m- meaning by that. So, yeah, I, but uh, I have like another question for you, and I, I, I really appreciate your time, sir. And I was, um, why, why, why do you think that NASA doesn't go ahead and put like a, like a, a full time camera like on the moon? Because you know the, the Soviets did it, and the and then we we went well you know in the sixties you know we went to the moon and all that. Why like why don't they put like a camera pointing at the Earth from the moon? That would be phenomenal, wouldn't it? I mean that like a like a permanent kind of uh, probe stationed up there with some streaming video. Yeah, that, that would be that be a really interesting idea. Of course, the moon is so much farther away that if you want to get really high resolution of the Earth then you want the satellite to be in orbit around the Earth. But I can imagine there are science questions that if you, that you'd want to put a small telescope on the moon, or even a large telescope, and yeah. point it back at the Earth and, and observe the Earth. I think that, I mean, I, I've sat on NASA committees. Uh, one of the committees I've sat on is the one that has to set priorities in the budget for what the next science projects are going to do. And the, the real problem is there are way more projects that astronomers want to do than than NASA has and the U.S. government can fund, and so they have to make priorities. And there are these these pitched battles between different groups of, of, of scientists that have their different pet projects, and they all present their pet projects to this committee, and the committee has the awful task of having to rate, rate them. And all the ideas are good, but you got to pick the ones that you think are the best, and, and a lot of them, 90% of them, fall away, unfortunately, because, you know, we just don't have the money, and you know, our government is in a, has a big debt right now. We just can't spend lots of money on, on astronomy. We can only spend a certain amount. So I imagine an idea like that, while being very interesting, probably would not be as important as, say, sending a, a probe to the one of the moons of Jupiter, Europa, that we know has oceans under the, the surface and search for life there. I think that that sort of satellite, most American taxpayers, if they're interested in space, 
would rather see built than than something else. So there are a few key things that have been chosen by this committee for the future, but so many good ideas just can't get funded. Yeah, I, w- I would think that it would have multiple, ap- uh, you know, practical applications as far as earth sciences and and, and finding out, you know, er- you know, discoveries about Earth's atmosphere and cloud formations and all kinds of data that could be gathered and practical uses that would be gathered that that would be more directly related to something beneficial on the Earth as opposed to going to a moon of Jupiter and looking at their oceans. You see what I'm saying? That it yeah, seemed, they, they, yeah. NASA, NASA divides its budget up into different sections. The section I was on was uh, space astrophysics. There's also a section on the exploration of the solar system, and then there's also a, se- um, uh, a section called something uh, like the return to Earth or voyage to Earth. Mm-hmm. That's some sort of you know poetic name, and that's what this would fall under. And so I don't know what they've what projects they've listed there, but I just. Like all the other ones in math that I've been involved with, we must have way too many projects to fund. Now, the thing you're talking about would be kind of cool because it would be much easier to take average, if you want to know the average something of the Earth, the, the cloud cover, the temperature, something like that, going actually farther away from the Earth and looking at it, say, from the position of the moon, you'd probably be able to get a more accurate uh, measurement of the average properties of the Earth than something in orbit. So that would right. be a, an interesting idea. Yeah, it just seems like a well to me. It seems just like a total no-brainer. See, like why haven't this? Why hasn't this been done? Why isn't it done now? And it seemed like you know they. I'm looking at imagery on NASA, and it's like they're stitching together composites from satellite imagery and stuff like that. And it's like, well, I mean, put put something on the moon. You got the tub, Hubble telescope that can look way out of the vast reaches of space. I mean, it, it, it seemed like it would be small potatoes to get something on the moon that could focus in you know you have a you know go ahead and put a zoom lens on it and then have it um you know uh, track track the earth um and then have just a a, a real-time streaming obser- uh kind of observation of the earth and it, it just seems like such a no-brainer to me i, I just have no, it's just it's just beyond me why that wouldn't exist at in, in the year 2015 you know what i mean there's one other there's one other practical problem is that NASA doesn't have enough rockets, and 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 private industry is stepping up and is beginning to build uh, vehicles to launch stuff into space. SpaceX, Sierra mm-hmm. Design, and whatever the other one is. But NASA itself doesn't have very many rockets to launch things to get out to the moon at this point. They have some vehicles, but they have very few of them. So they they also have to choose what they do based on. The fact that they're, they just don't have enough rockets at this point. We, unfortunately, NASA, the way it's been administered in the last 20 years was they were, they, they had great rocket ships back when we went to the moon and afterwards, mm-hmm. but then they decided that we would do things closer to the Earth so we got built smaller rockets. There were a few large rockets left over, and then NASA said, okay, we, maybe we're going to go to Mars. We have to start building large rocket technology again. And that's, that was called the Orion Project. But the Orion project had so many cost overruns that NASA basically killed most of it about, I don't know, eight years ago or so. Yeah. And yeah. so since that time, there's been this, this vacuum of, of NASA being able to, to launch things that are, the stuff that's very far away. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, we had all that capability. We certainly can do it still, but we're just behind on building our rockets. Yeah, so you just don't have enough rockets to go around, huh? Uh, yeah, I was just wondering, like, why did they never 
put a camera in the cockpit of the shuttle as it's going out of the Earth's, uh, you know, it's, I, they always show, like, the picture of the tank breaking off and, and then uh-huh. from the back. But they, I was like, man, wouldn't it be cool? And I called NASA and I asked them about it, and they said, well, that's a good idea. But it was, like, the last shuttle mission, so it says, well, we can't implement that now. It's like, I don't know. It's like, it's like NASA needs some decent consultants maybe they 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 don't have very good consultants on like maybe what the because I, I would think the public would be like interested in what's going on from the view of the astronaut too i mean they don't have to like you know keep it on that view but you know they could switch back and forth between cameras and all that and i said yeah why don't they have that that just seems like a another you know total no-brainer and it's like wow yeah and then the I, I just yeah just wondering like what what's what's going on with that with the decision making process i mean i i don't know i'm not a scientist and all that so uh, you know but i, I was just it, it just uh, yeah it just gets my curiosity going you know it's like why uh-huh. why, why don't they have that you know so but but they don't and well that's that's a great idea but let me tell you a couple things about that one is i know a bunch of astronauts who've been on the, the shuttle and when you're a shuttle astronaut you're you you're doing stuff nonstop, and so if you want to put a telescope on the shuttle like you're talking about, it has to work automatically. You can't have astronauts having to point it and do stuff with it, so it's got to be really well engineered. You could do that. That's not no yeah. problem, but that's one small problem. Um, but there's actually a cheaper way of getting such small things into space is that there, there are things called uh, CubeSats, which are, imagine the size of a, of a Kleenex box, in your bathroom, NASA will has has grants which will fund you for a little bit of money, and you can put together a satellite, and it's the size of that box or less. They will put it on on whatever rocket is going to go up soon and launch into orbit for you. And so there are actually quite a few very small cameras that universities here at Texas A and M. We have a bunch of agricultural satellites that have been launched by uh, graduate students and undergraduates. They built them themselves. And these little these little box satellites. And so they get launched, and they they look down on the Earth, and you know look at look at where the plants are, and look at the temperature of the ocean, and stuff like that. So that actually is a, a really cheap way because you're the, the rockets are going up for some other reason. They're going to launch a communication satellite, mm-hmm. something like that. And so the cost is only the cost of building the little box thing, which is which isn't that much. So there is a way of getting small stuff into space extremely inexpensively through this CubeSat project. And that is well funded by NASA. And you know, actually, I'm sitting right across the street from one sitting is our space sciences lab, and I know they're building two two uh, sats, which they call Aggie sats, expected A and M. But they're building them right now, and it takes a year or so to build them. And I don't know how long it takes to get launched, but they get launched pretty quickly. So that that's one that's another way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I like looking at that stuff on uh, YouTube. A lot of amateur uh, balloons, sending balloons up and doing different stuff like that. And yeah, it's uh, it's interesting what you see up up there. It's kind of uh, I, I was looking at one where it uh, yeah the it, it, the sun was in the horizon and then it's uh, it's it's it it's funny how it looks so close, but it's you know so far away. And the sun looks so close, and and uh, yeah. Have you ever seen time lapse photo, uh, time lapse photography of the sun? 
yeah. Yeah. It, what is the, what is the deal? Because I was looking at one. I was looking at uh, some footage that I have uh, recently looked at, and the sun as it's as it's, as it's rising. Um, and then this is a time lapse. This, the footage is what I'm talking about. That was taken at a, like a, a considerably high altitude. I, I, I don't know exactly where, but it was like above the cloud layer at some mountain range or something. And the sun is coming up uh, the, as the sun is rising. It is getting progressively larger, and there's just no doubt about it. It's getting progressively larger. And I said, well, how is that even remotely possible if it's 93? million miles away is it some kind of optical mm-hmm. illusion or what what is happening there well it's it's, it's not exactly an optical illusion it's, it's actually optics the air is when you look through lots of air it's just like looking through a lens the, the air can magnify or shrink images depending on the curvature of the air the temperature of the air so when the sun rises the sun is actually the, the atmosphere acts like a, a, a piece of optics that squishes the sun now, just imagine the sun right in the horizon, you just push it down, so now it's just kind of a little sliver. That's what the atmosphere is doing. So you're actually getting a distorted image of the sun that is starts out really small and gets larger because as it gets higher up in the atmosphere, there's less atmosphere, and therefore the optical effect of the atmosphere gets gets reduced. Hmm, okay. So it's it's basically the atmosphere acts as sort of a lens then. It's sort yeah. of a it's sort of a lens, yeah, yeah. Is that is that what accounts for like harvest moons and all that, where you see the moon and it looks really really big? Uh, oh, that's not, that that is the optical illusion, and psychologists have no idea what causes that. The moon is is roughly the same size as it always is, but the human eye always sees stuff in the sky much larger when it's on the horizon than when it's overhead, and absolutely no one really knows what causes that. It's a cool, it's a really interesting question. Um, and someone will figure it out someday, but they haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, I've looked at that stuff too, and that's pretty pretty wild because it, uh, it it not only looks so much bigger, but if you do like uh, like some some comparison, like it, to its proportional relationships to what it's what's around it, it's like wow, it's certainly uh, it, it certainly um, for all practical purposes it appears much larger and it's just, yeah, that, that is really interesting but it's um, see, and then, you know, they say it's psychological but then it's captured on film that's another thing which is kind of interesting to me well, no, no, the, when, it's, when it's on film though, it's still you can measure it, the, the moon is actually very, 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 very slightly smaller when it's on the horizon compared to when it's straight overhead, which I would never be able to tell that. It's the same, it really is the same size to your eye on the horizon as overhead. I know it doesn't look that way, and it certainly doesn't look that way to me, but it is. Um, it's very strong optical illusion. Hmm, okay. Yeah, so the it's sort of the opposite of what it's doing to the sun. So the sun is making it look bigger as it gets up, but in the moon it's bigger as it gets closer to the horizon. That's really interesting. Uh, that's really, really Actually, interesting. I- Actually, when the sun rises or sets, you think about the sun setting. As it gets closer and closer to the horizon, of course, it, it appears to get squished, and then finally it disappears below the horizon. But if you look at it really carefully, with you know people will take time-lapse videos, as you're saying, they're actually what's happening is the sun is going down below the horizon, but the atmosphere, because of this optical effect, produces a second image of the sun, which is upside down and above the real sun. So you have the real sun setting below the horizon, and then you have this, art, this fake sun, which is the, the mirror image above the real sun. 
So as the real sun goes down, its image goes down, but the second image actually goes up. And it doesn't go up very much. It goes up a very small amount. And as it goes up, it shrinks until it forms a little line, and then the line suddenly disappears. And when it suddenly disappears, that will flash brilliant green, an emerald green, and it's called the green flash. You should look that up on Google. Just you know, type in green flash, and, and there, there's some action character called green flash, but if you say sun green flash, you'll, you'll find pictures of it on images. And it's really cool. And what that is, is it's this weird second image of the sun that is going up in the sky, not down, below the horizon and it's kind of like a mirage effect of when you, that you see in the desert and when right. when I observe at observatories where we can where it's really clear and you can see the horizon you see this green flash with your naked eye all the time it's hard to see it here in Texas but when you have a nice ocean view or you're out in the desert where there's a mountain range in the distance it's really noticeable it's really it's brilliant green and it's a very really small fraction of a second but it's clearly green and that's due to the refractive properties of the atmosphere. It's 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 causing yeah. that. Oh. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the atmosphere produces the second image. It's upside down. Wow. No, I'd never heard of that before. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, man. Uh, well, hey, I, man, I appreciate you filling me in on this stuff because yeah, I'm just sure. doing some doing some research, my own personal curiosity, and just trying to. Uh, get a kind of better grasp on you know just what's going on around me you know what I mean so it's kind of just okay, no, I appreciate it yeah you, you, you got me on my telephone which is unusual I usually don't I usually don't use phones but if you have other questions please email me um, that's the easiest way and if I have time I'll, I can answer your questions okay yeah sure will man I uh, and yeah and I thank you for spending so much time with me here and this is really, really oh, no good problem. so uh, I enjoy talking with someone intelligent, so it's fun for me to do that. So. Yeah, yeah, cool, man. So, uh, yeah, you have a good day and uh, and good rest okay. of the week. Okay, uh, same to you. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Okay.